Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is James Garbarito. His new book is Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us. In it, he provides a wide-ranging view of current research on human development in adolescence and early adulthood. He shows how studies reveal the adolescent mind's keen ability for malleability, suggesting the true potential for rehabilitation. Garbarino focuses on how and why some convicted teenage murderers have been able to accomplish dramatic rehabilitation and transformation, emphasizing the role of education, reflection, mentoring, and spiritual development. With a deft hand, he shows us the prisoner's world that is filled first and foremost with stories of hope amid despair and moral and psychological recovery in the face of developmental insult and damage. It's a great book, and we had a great discussion about it. I give you James Garbarino. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, so you have written this book, Miller, Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us. I'm guessing like at cocktail parties, this is a kind of awkward thing to talk about your life's work. I mean, you've been a kind of a witness in teenage killing cases. You've dedicated you know, a, a good portion of, of your working life to talk about hope and possibilities. I mean, how do you bring that up with strangers at a cocktail party or coffee shop? How do you talk about that? Well, it, it usually when people find out about this uh, line of work that I've been doing, you know, as kind of my second half as part of an academic career, uh, there's a mix of fascination and revulsion. You know, one reason why crime programs are so popular on television is people are, are, are transfixed by it, particularly the more bizarre cases, you know, People often want to talk about serial killers, who, of course, are a very, very tiny proportion of, of people who kill. Uh, once you get into the nitty-gritty about people's lives, often well, it's, it's a bit overwhelming for people because it, it really is uh, venturing into the dark side of human experience. And in addition, people have very strong, often very strong sort of moral views on killers and who they are and what should happen to them. So it is challenging for many people, even people in my own extended family, to uh, to get their head around the idea that many, even most, of teenage killers uh, are capable of rehabilitation and transformation. And if you come back 20 years, 25 years after the fact, some of them are not just safe for release, but have become remarkable specimens of humanity. So, okay. So what's the most awkward conversation you've had with a friend or family member? Have it, has it been like, have you ever had to walk away? I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 you know, I can imagine that, that again, you say there's deep moral views and things like that. I mean, are there like memories where like, gosh, you're thinking, why did I do this? <laughs> well, that's more likely to happen in court actually than in, in private life because the level of frustration with the, States attorneys with the judges often is uh, is really hard to bear. But you make a case, uh, you you illuminate someone's life, and they just uh, sort of walk all over that, ignore it, and move right to reimposing a life without parole sentence. So that's actually harder. Um, I think in you know in maybe I lead a sheltered life, 
in a sense. But uh, in private conversations, I don't think I can recall one that was a knockdown, drag out battle the way many of these court appearances are. It's interesting because you, your book, I mean, there was this Supreme Court ruling, Miller versus Alabama in 2012, which kind of changed your life and changed the life of a lot of these teenage killers where this was basically, it was challenged if you could actually sentence a teenager to life without parole. I mean, these kinds of, what I was fascinated by is you actually note that people like in their thirties that were in prison with life sentences without parole when they found out about this hearing their behavior changed which blew me away i mean because you kind of think like it's like the butterfly effect kind of thing right come on is it really gonna? but that really happens right like just a little bit of hope goes a long way in in some of the hardest stories in the human condition yeah there's an interesting mix of things going on about that historically that uh, some of the older guys um they went through this transformation and rehabilitation process without any hope without any hope of release and there's a sort of purity to that that this was their way of making peace with their lives of doing penance for what they committed in effect saying that the only way i can live with myself is to become a good person given that I took a human life. There are some who were sort of almost wallowing in, in hopelessness. And when this decision came down, it gave them a glimmer of hope and it motivated them to change. Now, of course, when you go into court on those cases, the state's attorney, the prosecution is likely to say, aha, you see, there's no intrinsic internal interest. It's purely external, instrumental, uh, self-serving. So that it, it's sort of a two-edged sword in that sense for these guys who changed once the decision came down. I was just talking actually earlier today about a case where uh, this guy had been so depressed for the first years he was incarcerated. When the Miller decision came down and when his state's courts said he and others were entitled to review, it gave him that glimmer of hope that you referred to, and he did transform himself dramatically. And when we go to court in that case, I'm sure that the, the other point of view will be, aha, he just is doing that uh, in a very instrumental, self-serving way, and it doesn't really represent a fundamental shift. We'll have to see. There's a podcast I really like called On Being with Krista Tippett, and she always asks people the same question to begin with. I've n- I don't think I've ever asked this question, but she always asks the people, uh, and she has artists, philosophers, physicists. She always asks them, do you come from a spiritual background? And I'm fascinated that this is the line of work you've gone into. Like, was there, I mean, something in your own upbringing, spiritually, ethically, you know, some kind of church, synagogue, something that that kind of propelled you in this direction? Well, I've had a long uh, spiritual quest. It's been sort of checkered when it turned terms of actual religious experience. I started life as a Catholic, ended up in a Protestant church eventually Unitarian Church, eventually um, Buddhism, extended period. But then I was actually at a Buddhist retreat, and there were people were doing Buddhist chants, and I kept hearing the Lord's Prayer. And I sort of said, well, all right, I, I'm a Christian. I guess that's what I am at the core. And then I moved backwards to the uh, Methodist Church I had been in, to the Unitarian Church, and eventually ended up in the Catholic Church, in part because I think that's where my spiritual path began. And as I point out in the book, uh, you know, there's a line in the Catholic liturgy which, which says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And that's the line that always grabs me right at, right at my core, in part because I think everyone 
you know, is a sinner in some in some way. Now, the guys I work with, of course, are sinners squared, mag, mega sinners in many cases. But but offering them this spiritual possibility of transformation and redemption is something that I've resonated with since I started with this work, and it really has become a mission. So for me, it is it is very much a spiritual quest to deliver on what I think are some of the foundational spiritual principles certainly that I try to live by and I hope others will try to live by and I've been most inspired by. It's interesting because we saw this last week. I mean, talk about a timely book and conversation, this amazing act of forgiveness from Brant John, this, you know, uh, brother of a murder victim, uh, embracing this police officer who had, you know, thought, I mean, I I remember the story like a year ago, she thought she was in her apartment. She was really in his apartment. This, uh, his apartment and shot him and he embraced her and forgave her and in this per- just promiscuous ex- like exhibition of love and grace and a friend of mine wrote something about this he said i've never in all truthfulness i've never seen an act of forgiveness this bold that does not prov- provoke major resistance regardless of the dynamics and he quotes his dad actually writing and he, his dad wrote a book called the panopticon he said there is something about the 100% with no exceptions forgiveness that jesus talked about it's a feature that upsets conservatives but it also upsets liberals there is something in it to offend everybody except the person that needs it all the time and that was was amazing it didn't take long for this act of beauty to just be kind of sloganized uh, you know, weaponized, uh, conservatives weaponized it, liberals weaponized it. And this, it, it, it's interesting, right? There's something about forgiveness that we've become a more permissive culture, but we're much less forgiving. Well, it, it is a sort of um, virtual nakedness in a way. And, you know, I don't think it should be granted uh, trivially or or without process, without due process, if you will. But, uh, it, it is transformative, but not only for the perpetrator, it's usually transformative for the victim and the victim's family. Uh, I was testifying in a case not long ago in which a then teenager had killed a 12-year-old boy. This was 20 years ago. And the boy's father had had held on to his rage and his sadness about the death of his son for all these years. It almost destroyed him. It almost destroyed his marriage. He started to drink. It was only when his pastor raised the possibility that forgiveness would be the opening for his redemption and his healing, not just for the perpetrator. So it got to the point where in my testimony, I mentioned this, that this perpetrator had gone through this process of forgiving himself, not trivially, not easily, not lightly, uh, but just as the victim's father, it, it required this intensive getting to the naked place of humanity in the face of the universe. And and the father sort of got it. And after the hearing, he, he came up to hug this defendant, now 20 years after he had murdered the father's son. And again, it was liberating for the father as much as it was for the perpetrator. And that's the part that people often miss. They see it as a one-way or one-sided process, when in fact it it usually is very much to 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 a two way street, and that's one reason why I always encourage victims' families not to trivially or superficially, you know, okay, you killed my loved one, have a nice day, but to go through this process and get to this point. And most of the, you know, certainly in Christianity, it's the point you're supposed to get to. It's that un- talk about unconditional love. It's that forgiveness that, that springs for that, and it's healing. 
It's healing for the individuals. It's healing for the community. It's healing for the, you know, for the society if people can go through that. And I agree with you that this weaponizing of positive gestures is a very bad indicator of where things stand in the larger culture, the larger society. There's a theologian, Miroslav Volf. He says that, um, is that uh, on the level of human relations, that you know, we basically, if I take something of yours on, on the economy, if I take that's theft. And normally, we don't live in the area of theft. We usually, even if we get a good deal on a car or something, we think it's exchange. But then he says, you know. Theft and exchange exist, and then there's this unilateral thing, which is a gift. Uh, and he says, you know, on the on the level of justice in human relations, revenge is akin to theft. Like you hurt me, I'm going to take whatever I can. He says justice is akin to exchange, and he says forgiveness is the gift, right? I mean, it's 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 this thing that you. But what you're pointing out, right, is often it's a gift that gives itself back to you, yes. like in ways that are. So, it sounds counterintuitive, but it seems like from your work, you've seen that that's true more often than not. Yeah, I think again, you don't want to do it uh, in an artificial, superficial way. But it is one of the great ways to lift the weight of suffering. I mean, I've seen families that have held on to their suffering for 20, 30 years. They show up at hearings. They just want more vengeance. Uh, and it's not healthy. It's not healthy for them. Uh, and it's not healthy for the community. And certainly not healthy for the, the perpetrator who, who craves, who's gone, put in the work and put in the time and put in the energy and craves that forgiveness so that they can uh, forgive themselves and, and move on with life. I mean, it's a very small percentage of people who don't who do forgive themselves too readily. At the extreme, they're psychopaths, you know, who have no moral framework, no empathy at all. And so, this is just a, a tactical matter for them. But once you move out of that relatively small group, you're talking about functioning human beings, and these dynamics are are central, whether it's uh, you know little things or big things or the biggest thing of all, a taking of a human life. I mean, you say, I mean, we know so much more about trauma and I'd like to ask you a little more about that in a second, but you have this poignant description of some of these teen killers are like, they've become uh, traumatized children kind of inhabiting an adult ish human body like a developed human body and but this is like all of us deal with this right like most of this sort of compulsive things that you know the fight we keep having with our spouse or the thing that we the habit we can't kick or something like that oftentimes right it's the wounded child in us that's living in the adult body and this is sort of an extreme form of what most of us like kick ourselves for right that we i, I can't put down the argument or i can't you know we all have this experience. Yeah, right? that's true. I think that humanizing uh, the concept of trauma is an important uh, part of this because, in fact, I don't like the, the commonly used term post-traumatic stress disorder. I prefer to talk about post-traumatic stress development because that's what it's about. What do you do with your traumatic experiences? Like, what do you do with the fact that your mother was too intrusive or your father was cold and distant? And everybody has to process these childhood experiences and, and find a way to free themselves of them. But as you point out, most of us take a long, long time to do that if we ever get to that point. Um, when you're talking about trauma, you're talking about you know these experiences doubled or tripled or to some exponential power because you're talking about a fundamental assault on the sense of living in a safe world. And when it happens in childhood, you do end up with these untreated traumatized children inhabiting and controlling 
the bodies of scaring t- scary teenagers and adults. Um, you know, there's a there's a biopic about uh, James Brown. Uh, I think it's called what's it called? Get on up or get on down, whichever was it is. But he was a very abused child, a traumatized child. And there's an amazing. <clears throat> some of the film has him as a young child. There's an amazing scene towards the end of the film where now he's a 40 something year old man. He's rich, he's successful, but he gets, his button gets pushed by something. And all of a sudden he's shooting a shotgun into the ceiling and he gets in his pickup truck and drives off and there are police cars chasing him. Finally, they stop and surround him and all the cops you know, have their pistols pointed at the truck and the door opens and the eight year old actor who played him as a child steps out. And it vividly makes this point that this 42-year-old James Brown was being controlled by this untreated eight-year-old traumatized James Brown. And this is very, very common, particularly among the most dangerous uh, of these guys, because they, you know, toddlers are dangerous in that sense. We don't see that because they're so small and weak. You know, one researcher pointed out that if every 15-month-old went to bed tonight and woke up tomorrow and was six feet four and weighed 250 pounds. He says, you know, most parents and early childhood educators would be dead or maimed by the end of the day because their impulses are not under control. Uh, They respond impulsively, but luckily they're weak. And so they don't do as much damage. But these guys are not weak. And I've certainly sat across from guys who are best understood as toddlers inside big bodies. And they are scary. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah. I mean, how does that fear, like, I mean, that's the scary thing you do sitting with them face to face. I mean, how, like, how do you deal with the fear? I mean, because it, it completely, clearly you're a very compassionate and empathetic person, but I, I mean, I would think that just the fear that's hard, right? Like when that fear to, to empathize with the, the hurting child, when they could hurt you pretty quickly, <laughs> it's a big violent per- person. Well, you know, that fear is a, uh, is a very tiny part of my experience. I think it's partly because the guys that I'm meeting with know that I'm there for them and I'm trying, you know, trying to give a human story of their life. Uh, many of them 
you know, have made a lot of progress uh, since they were, you know, scary, untreated, traumatized children inside teenage bodies. Um, so I, I don't really feel afraid um, sitting across from them. I'm the, the biggest fear I have is that I can't contain their suffering. You know, usually I'm pretty good at that. Uh, recently, I sat across from a guy and by the end, I was thinking I was in the biblical story of Job. You know, he was so afflicted and so traumatized and so abandoned and so hurt. Just being with his suffering was, was for me, close to overwhelming. So I worry about that. But I don't, I almost never have felt afraid in their company. Um, you know, there was one guy who tried to persuade me he was a Buddha and Jesus reincarnated, except he was a, a multiple killer. He was a bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I don't mean to laugh. I understand but it. It's, it's, you know. It's hard. He even had changed his name to a Sanskrit Sanskrit name. But you know, so he was so far out of touch with most anything we would call reality that that uncertainty of him was a bit scary. Um, but that's that's very very rare in my in my experience. The 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 scariest things that have happened is when I'm worried that I'm going to make a mistake on their behalf and letting them down. You know, could could lead them or someone else. Uh, you know, to to be angry. Uh, there's a Law and Order episode that really stuck with me, in which uh, a psychiatrist is murdered, and he's murdered because testifying in a case, he made a big mistake, which led to this guy being uh, executed. And his daughter comes after the psychiatrist. Now, that's a sobering memory. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that has always stuck with me. Um, but uh, by and large, in their presence, no. I I would say. 90% of the time, the interviews end with a hug. Um, I always bring tissues with me because they often result in tears. You know, there's something called the Adverse Childhood Experience Scale, which is 10 questions about sort of bad things that can happen to you as a child. Abuse, neglect, having parents who are separated, uh, drug addicted, mentally ill, violent, just all the afflictions you can imagine. Only about one in a thousand people get a score of nine or 10 on this. Two thirds of Americans get a score of zero or one. The average score of the guys I interview is seven, which means the average guy has more adversity than 99% of the population. But for nine or 10, it means they have more adversity than 999 out of 1,000 people. Now, recently, I was talking with a guy whose score was 10. He was this big, tough, imagine your worst caricature of a gang, you know, gang leader, gang banger. Um, you know, we got his score, I, you know, 10. I said, uh, if we gave this to guys in your neighborhood, how many do you think would get a score of nine or 10 out of 100? You say, well, pretty much all of them. I said, what if we gave this to 100 guys at random from across America? How many do you think would have a score of nine or 10? He said, oh, I don't know, 50, 60. I told him, no, it's one out of a thousand. And he started to cry. And when I brought out the tissues, I said, I know why you're crying because no one ever explained to you the weight that you've been carrying around for your 24 years. It's this heavy, heavy weight of having that much adversity in your life. And that's why when I go into court and a prosecutor says, well, lots of people have difficult lives and they don't kill people. My first response is always, yeah, but we're not talking about some generic difficult life. We're talking about more difficulty than 999 out of a thousand people. And you need to have a certain humility about that because you know, most of us did not live with that adversity. And if we did, you know, bless us if we survived it and found a way to transcend it and didn't fall prey to the toxic influences around us, as many of these guys. When you say that you, you mentioned a minute ago, like the, this Job person that like 
that you talked with and it was just all, like you thought i don't know what i can do with this like how do you what do you do after that i mean do you do you like how how do you spend the rest of your day after an interview like that after a conversation like well that? he was it was about an hour's drive back from the prison to to my office and i wept <laughs> during the ride back i did I, I usually am able to avoid that, but his, you know, at the, at the end of the interview, you know, his, this litany of loss and, and hurt, he said at the end something like, you know, look, my hairline is receding. Even that I don't have, you don't have a full head of hair. And somehow that was like the last insult for him. So I weep, I pull myself back together. And uh, today I was sitting there working on his report because he has undergone an amazing transformation and rehabilitation given what he's been through. And I feel, you know, the institutions of the society let him down, the family let him down, the school let him down. You know, he's got a learning disability, can't do math. Uh, he grew up in a, he lived in a neighborhood, Chicago, very well known neighborhood as a neighborhood for gang violence. He had never been out of that neighborhood before he went to prison. He'd never even been to downtown Chicago. So his whole world was dominated by the gangs in his neighborhood. And he became a soldier in those gangs. And, you know, they were the family he didn't have, a very nasty family to have. But the point is, I have such compassion for what he went through. And the fact that now, 20 years later, he's become this well-functioning person, it, it really is miraculous. And it gives you a sense of, wow, human beings are capable of amazing stuff if they have a spiritual path, if they get educated, if they have relationships of mentoring, relationships with other people, all of which he, he was able to do. And the other thing is he had someone in that bleak upbringing. You know, he had this sense of his grandmother. His grandmother was the person who cared about him. And so he had something to go back to. The worst cases are the ones who don't have anything to go back to. You know, we talk about rehabilitation. Well, as one guy said, how am I supposed to become rehabilitated? if I was never habilitated in the first place. So if they don't have anyone back there to go back to and build on, it's it's like starting from scratch. And that's a much harder prospect. Do you find yourself like emotionally, like, I mean, you're connected to these guys. Most of them are, are males. Like, do you ever find like you're frustrated? Like, gosh, I wish I could, you know, they're incarcerated. I wish I could take them to a park or something. I wish I could, like, I mean, is there, do you feel confined uh, by kind of the constraints all around you around them i mean because it sounds like you're seeing into some of the hopefulness of their souls and yet like you know you and after the interview and we know like how awful prison life can be and the jeffrey epstein thing and all these kind of things so i mean it's got to be heartbreaking after you spend time with them do you know that they're in this place that like the odds are alive it's going to it could undo anything positive that just happened well there's a sense that at some point which you have if you have one of these sentences you have to i don't know if you uh, explicitly make this decision, but you have to decide if you're going to live as a savage barbarian or as a cloistered monk. And the ones who commit to living the life of a monk have all the benefits that monks have wherever they're cloistered. They, you know, cloistered monks don't go to parties and they don't go to the mall. They're they're living a contemplative life. And some of these guys, particularly as they age. They're sort of given the space to do that by the younger inmates and the other inmates. And a lot of them start in gangs, and you, you can sort of retire from the gangs in your mid-30s in many places. You know, it varies from system to system. Um, there's, you know, uh, there's a group of guys in uh, out in the Pacific Northwest who I'm very close to who, you know, who really live as if they're a group of monks uh, who happen to be inside a state prison. But that's how they live. They support each other. They help with each other's education. Uh, 
they, they, someone came in and taught them how to be yoga instructors and they do yoga with the mentally disabled prisoners in the other wing of the prison. So there are many prisons, there are opportunities within the limits that you point out to live a decent life. And you know, certainly one of the tenets of Buddhism is that you know, wherever you are, you know, there you are. There's a book that prisoners read all, all the time called We're All Doing Time. It's written by a Buddhist teacher who says that in prison, you, you're quite aware, you can't escape the fact that where you are is what you are. But if you live out in the outside world, you can be distracted by the temptations of what you are, what you wear, you are, what you drive, you are, what you have, you are, what you drink. Whereas prison cuts it down to the bare essentials where a lot of them meditate. You, know, you can sit there in your cell and, and be, you know, be at one with the same universe that a Tibetan Buddhist monk is being with, you know, 8,000 miles away in, in a monastery in Tibet. So there are these possibilities and, you know, varies from prison to prison. It's easier as you get older. Um, you know, this is one reason why educational programs in prison are so important, too, because building a mind is one of the best defenses against the destructive, toxic effects of incarceration. Um, you know, if you if you're a college student, you take a freshman college uh, philosophy course. The professor often says, "Well, philosophy is useful for life." And most students think that's a lot of BS. But I've met a lot of prisoners who studied philosophy, and it really did give them a place to stand in the universe, uh, something that they desperately need. And this is one reason why my college minor in philosophy stands me in good stead. So when some guy says, have you read Plato's Allegory of the Cave? I can say, well, as a matter of fact, I have. And we can talk about those ideas. And often it's exhilarating for them to talk about ideas with somebody because that's where they're committed to. I interviewed a guy recently. Um, he's been awaiting trial for a murder committed when he was 17, so he's now 22. He's read 2,000 books awaiting trial. So he's read more than any of my undergraduate students have read, and he's building a mind, and it's, uh, it's a mind worth saving. Who's your favorite philosopher? <sighs> hmm. I was particularly taken with at least in my college days, with existentialism. Uh, so it, it's tempting to say someone like Martin Heidegger, but it's very hard. To, he's so far to understand, I would not even sure I understood. <laughs> I remember reading his book, Being in Time, and I was reading page after page after page thinking, oh my God, I don't understand any of this. And finally, I understood a paragraph, so I circled it and I went to the professor. I said, I understood a paragraph. <laughs> so he was certainly... Um, uh, influential because existentialism is about that you can't begin to live until you contemplate the prospect of non-being. Certainly Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist teacher is influential, the Dalai Lama, certainly those kind of people. Um, but, you know, within the Christian tradition, uh, you know, I'd have to say Jesus was pretty good. You, know? <laughs> you and George W. You Bush. <laughs> you know, I, it, one of the things you face as an expert witness is how far you can go in sort of fighting back when you're being bullied by the prosecutor. One case, the prosecutor was, uh, this was after 9-11 in New York, and I'd written a piece about trying to understand the inner life of the terrorists. And so the prosecutor said, well, not only do you love murderers, but you love terrorists too. And I said, well, you'll have to take that up with Jesus. I think that was his message. <laughs> so I'm interested, do you believe in the afterlife? Like you're a Catholic, but you've been in Buddhist circles. I mean, I'm wondering like what uh, your experience of rehabilitation of people, how does that shape your view of like the afterlife and things like that? Because you're a religious guy. Well, 
I, I'm sort of confident, but without any specificity. You know, one of the Buddhist uh, teachings or virtues is non-attachment. Uh, about oh, seven years ago, I had a huge abscess on my liver, and I was getting ready to go off to give a lecture in Hawaii. My wife said, well, you can fulfill your lifelong dream of dying in Hawaii, or you can come to the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room and turned out I had an abscess the size of a softball on my liver. And my wife was freaked out, the fact that I was practicing non-attachment. You know, I'm here. If I die, I'm not here. Um, so I really try to take that seriously. Uh, maybe when the actual day comes more than it came with this abscess, I won't. I'll sort of chicken out. But I do think, you know, the, the Dalai Lama says he spends every morning meditating on non-existence because until you contemplate non-existence, you can't really appreciate existence. And that's something that I, I find very comforting and sustaining. And I think it has echoes in Christianity. That you know, Christianity says you should be prepared that this is your last day because it could be, and you should be living as if this could be your last day. You know, and then Buddhism certainly teaches the same thing. I think it's a the common theme and the sort of existentialist theme in many, if not most, religion or spiritual traditions. So uh, I find that sustaining. Each case is a new opportunity to walk this path and, and fulfill this mission. And uh, if it stopped tomorrow, um, I did it today. You do, yeah, you do seem attached to these guys, though. Well, yes, I am attached to them. I'm attached to my dogs. I'm attached to my wife, my children. <laughs> <laughs> but but not to the exclusion of grasping. You know, I think that's that's the, that's the hard part that's to negotiate. That non-attachment is not callousness. Non-attachment is the recognition of things are as they are now. But uh, the only way you can enjoy them is not to grasp onto them. C.S. Lewis says something like, "If if you gra- if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. <laughs> but if you, if you grasp earth, you lose both." Kind of thing. But that's sort of the idea, right? You have to hold things yes, loosely. I agree. I'm wondering your students, like your undergrads, like I mean, you. I read something where you said like your dream if your book was made a movie like you'd be cast by liam neeson and this you know this court case with miller with the person you're involved with and all this i I mean and you do have a pretty your life is dramatic and 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 i mean it's you tell an interesting story uh do your students like how how do they interact with this do they want to go with you ever i mean do they or say hey can we go to the i mean how is that like how do you relate to your students that know your what you're doing and how do you talk about it? Well, it's it's generally different with the undergraduate students versus the graduates. Some of the graduate students, you know, want to be me when they grow up. They want to do this kind of forensic work, and I have brought a couple of them along to on interviews. It's I don't do it generally because part of the goal of the interview is to make this personal, direct person to person connection, and it's a bit distracting to have a separate person there. The undergraduates are, I think, are genuinely interested because I often, you know, I, I teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I'll go to a prison on Wednesday and I come back to class on Thursday and tell them a little bit about who I was with and what happened or the case I testified in. And you know, like most undergraduates, many of them are uh, not interested in much of anything. Some of them are very interested and I have had them come up after the end of the semester to say that it really changed their life. I was giving a talk to a law school group recently and one of the law students came up and said, do you remember me? I was in your undergraduate class and that's why I'm here now doing this kind of law. So there are those kinds of career impacts. There also is this, there is this fascination with it often about you're dealing with these very raw human fundamental uh, issues. And that kind of authenticity is something that people often crave 
when they look around, you know, when their world is defined by the superficial dimensions of Facebook and Instagram and pop culture, you know, if they can get through that delusion, then they come to a point where they crave something deeper and more authentic. If you could change, if you could change one thing politically by fiat, if you could just like get a piece of legislation through or something like, because you see how, I mean, you see the impacts of legislation, laws, law breaking in a way that most people don't, right? That that are not law enforcement or in the prison system, somehow in the court system. Like, what would it be? I mean, what 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 thing would you say? Hey, if we could change this, it would make a huge difference in our culture. Well, one answer, maybe it sounds glib, is if we could become Norway. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. well, Norway- you know, Richard Rorty, R- Richard Rorty, the philosopher, said philosophers should try to help most of the world become more like America and America to become more <laughs> like Norway. <laughs> well, you know, Norway, in Norway, the maximum sentence is 21 years. After 21 years for any crime, for 21 years, the state can appeal to the court and say, this guy is so dangerous, we have to extend it by five. But that part of that, I think, is that therefore their system is totally committed to rehabilitation because they know you can't just wait it out till they die or wait it out to execute execute them you have to from day one be striving towards rehabilitation and transformation and as i understand it their system is very much more set up for that so i think that you know that kind of reorientation of the model through legislation would be good i mean we're getting sort of getting there step by step you had roper versus simmons and said you can't execute minors and you had Graham versus Florida says you can't give kids life without parole for non-murders. And finally, Miller versus Alabama, you can't give mandatory life without parole for murders. So we're inching in that direction, but it is very grudging. And you see that in the in the courtrooms implementing this. You see this in the legislatures as they struggle with it. Um, you know, the, what's the worst thing you can say to a politician? They're soft on crime. And in fact, you know, in a strange sort of way, the most sensible, the most practical approach is to be soft on crime in the sense of never denying the humanity of the criminal. And once you get to that point, then you your eyes open that, all right, this is a human being. They may have considered even a monstrous crime, but we have to uh, we have to soften them rather than harden them. You know, a kid. There was a kid once who had been beaten all his life by his father, and he was misbehaving and delinquent. He went before a judge who said, "Kid, you know, I want to come down there and give you a good whipping." And he said, "Come on and try. I bet you're not as good at whipping as my father was." <laughs> and that you know, that's a very real dynamic that punitiveness doesn't make it with abused kids and traumatized kids. That it's just more of the same for them, and it reinforces their view that the world is a hostile, dog-eat-dog world when we want them to have exactly the opposite view of the world. It's interesting. You know, some churches and recovery groups and other sort of nonprofits do kind of outreaches in prisons. I wonder like, if more Americans spent time seeing some of the stories you see. Do you, do you think our public life would be different? Well, in one of the Pacific Northwest states that I'm you know, pretty well connected with, there has been an effort to bring legislators and state officials into the prison to meet with these juvenile lifers. And it really has been transformative for the politician that they, they can't escape the humanity, the intelligence, the integrity of these guys. And so they, they have, they go, they've recently been going, beginning a sort of legislative initiative to reorganize the system based on these experiences. I'm a big believer that these experiences can be transformative for politicians. And, and when you can 
marshal the data to support that this is not a fluke. Uh, it can be very powerful. Uh, and, you know, that's the way American politics has long shifted. You, you may, some people remember that when President Kennedy came into office, that the fact that he had a mentally retarded sister, intellectually disabled sister, led to a whole new approach to uh, mental retardation by the federal government. Uh, you know, if if you have an addicted person in your family, it changes. Look what's happened with sexual orientation. Uh, some you know, some Cro-Magnon man like Dick Cheney, uh, because he has a, a lesbian daughter, takes a different approach than he would have if he was just a mainstream, ultra-conservative Republican. So I'm a big believer in that. That inspiring people to then look at the information in a new way, and uh, I think some of that has happened. Some of that will happen the more people do things like read Miller's Children or, or volunteer in these prison settings. that The amount of talent and intelligence and, and goodwill of some of the guys in prison, not all of them, obviously, but some of them is enough to change a lot of minds and hearts. Jim, I, I hope that uh, everybody that listens to this podcast will buy your book. Uh, I think it's amazing and, and it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's a hopeful, uh, man, if you can tell this story with hope, uh, that's amazing. And I, I think that if more people read this book, we'd, we'd live in a different kind of culture. And thanks for writing it. And thanks for spending some time talking to me about Thank it. Thank you for what is probably the most intelligent, compassionate interview I've done about this. <laughs> You're incredibly kind. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to James for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Miller's Children. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.